afternoon. Let me ask you a question to start off. What is it that you what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? Not not real super deep like your deepest darkest desires, but what are some things you want? What? That's deep. Freedom from death. I just mean like common sense. Like better a good grade on a midterm. Oh, debt. Yeah, okay, debt. Take both. You want it to be hot in in the room or outside? Okay. Some sushi. I'd like to get better at chess. I mean, I don't really play, but I would like to get better. That's partly why I'm not very good. Um, maybe you want to, yeah, there's all sorts of little desires, you may say, but they all have a built-in end, right? You're going to know for these types of things, you're going to know when it's accomplished. You're going to know when you've got it. So if you want a good grade on the test, at some point you're going to know whether that desire was fulfilled. If you want to get married, at some point that will become clear whether that has become true or not. These things is very much like the way we talk about knowledge in general, the way we talk about scientific facts. Once you know something, you've mastered it, you can put it into a category, and you can move on. If you understand the the second law of thermodynamics, and you understand the proof, and you can put it in a box, like, all right, let's move on, let's go to something else in physics, or you understand the law of gravity, you can do that. They have an end. They have a way that we think we can master it, come over on top of it. Is the knowledge of God like that? Do you come to the knowledge of God the way that you come to trying to know organic chemistry or trying to know a certain kind of literature? Hopefully it's obvious that it's not. That it's really not the same type of knowledge even. Almost as if we need a different word to use when we talk about knowing God versus knowing chemistry or chess or knowing the way to Boston. Why is that? Why is it different? I mean, sometimes we'll use the words like faith or trust, and that might help us, but even those words get misused a lot in our culture. They seem like weak words. They seem as if they're less than knowledge, or it seems like they're meant to be more than knowledge. But it's a different type of knowing because of the object. Because knowing God determines how that process can happen, what it's going to be like. Because organic chemistry is such that you can study certain diagrams and formulas, you can know it and master it and understand certain things about the chemical compounds of whatever's happening. But if you can't do that with God, how should that change how we know him? How should that change how we desire him? Now, I don't want to get too philosophical, but surely that fundamental point must matter. The object that we're trying to know, if you will, is going to determine how we should know it. And that's what I want to look at. This psalm that we have, I've been walking through uh, some of the psalms, and we've come to a psalm that describes a longing and a desire, something that this psalmist deeply deeply wants. 
And I think it's, it, it, it's meant to change the way that we approach God, to change the way that we even desire and long for him. It changes what we think of what faith is. But before we, we jump in, let's, let's pray and ask for help. God, you are the sovereign Lord. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. We thank you for the word of forgiveness that we could hear, the assurance of pardon. And we thank you that you desire to speak to us even now by your word, that you have spoken through the Psalms. We thank you for the gift that scripture is, that you have revealed yourself and your purpose for us in it. And uh, pray that you would soften our hearts by your spirit, that we would meet you, uh, the living God, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. All right, I want to I want to start off by looking at really two main uh, two main points, and then we're going to try to see why this matters. First is looking at this faith of the pilgrim knows longing. So I say pilgrim because uh, it's pretty clear from from looking at the text and reading commentaries, you can see that this is written by a guy on his way to the temple. He's on a pilgrimage literally, probably for a main feast that he wants to go and celebrate with, and he's longing to be there. This is common in ancient Israel where they would go for bigger feasts like Passover, Pentecost, uh, all sorts of feasts where it was important that they would bring, if they could afford it, animals to sacrifice, and they could come and worship at the place where God promised to be. One special place, the Temple of Jerusalem. And so the psalmist is, is, seems like he's on the way, and he's just crying out how lovely it is to be there. I want to be there. Look, I'm even jealous of the birds that can make their nests around the temple because they get to be there. And so he's, he's describing this sort of longing or desire. And the first thing that strikes me is that Notice that the psalmist's faith is something that he knows enough, but he doesn't know a whole lot. Meaning, he knows enough to know that he wants more. That seems to be a very important aspect of the psalmist's longing. That he knows enough to desire. He knows enough to see that he has lack, that God is so good and worthy, that he doesn't have all of God in his home, wherever he he lives, and he knows enough that he wants to go to the place where he can commune with him. And so that, you get a little glimpse of why this type of faith or this type of knowing is not like the other types of knowledge. It's not like organic chemistry. Maybe you've heard the um, sort of expression, undergrads often act as if they know everything, but once you're a PhD student, you realize you don't know anything. Because as you get deeper and deeper into a subject, you realize, wow, I've just begun to scratch the surface. That's something like what's happening in the faith of a Christian. That as you get a glimpse of God, it only opens up more and more. You see that you actually barely know God. Maybe you can compare it to, to being in a, in a very dark place. And as you get bigger and bigger candles or bigger and bigger sources of light, you realize that the room that you're in is much bigger than you previously thought. 
And so as that, the light gets bigger, you actually see that the room is not just a 2 by 4 or an 8 by 10 It's huge. And so why is this important? Well, first, it, it's clear that um, it must be that God is setting the terms, that the, the, the more that we come to know God, the more that we're going to want to submit and surrender to the one that we're coming to know. Which is one example why we always do confession of sin here every week, not because we want to lay burdens of guilt on everybody, but because the more that we know the Lord God of hosts, the more that we'll want to meet him at the cross, the more that we'll want to discover his mercy, and the more that we'll see how bad our sin is. So it's this unique type of growth in knowledge. But it's also a clear example of what it means for a faithful person to to be passionate or to desire things. One easy example is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which may have found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It was as as if he got a taste. He saw that this is going to be really good, and then he ran to sell everything to make sure that he could get it. Is this the experience of, of your own faith? Do you experience this sense of you're on a pilgrimage, and you know enough about the pilgrimage, you know enough about the journey to know that you want to be on that journey? But you know you're not there yet. So this desire is this back and forth of, wow, I really want more of God. And I see that I'm still very far away. Or do you, do you treat knowing God like any other type of knowledge? What would that look like? That would look like the typical self-righteous Pharisee who feels like, all right, this is God. I've got him in my box. I can get a checklist of when I do things, then I've, I've accomplished my God tasks for the week, or what have you. And coming to know an actual person doesn't really surprise me. I'm not more and more intrigued. If anything, I'm more and more bored. Then you must be coming to know something different than the living God of the universe. Surely that's not what it's supposed to be like. Jesus talks about himself as living water from which we will never thirst. The more of the water that we have, the more that we will want it. But he describes it as this sort of, we're satisfied, but we want more and more of the water. We want more and more of the thirst. The other thing about this this psalm, especially the start of it, is that it's very striking in how it's almost written as a, as a sort of love poetry, uh, especially at the start. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is also a, a, a comparison, at least. It doesn't hold up in all ways, but it's a comparison when we compare it to uh, human love, when you someone is falling in love with someone, 
they, they want to fall at their feet and they feel as if all they want to do is in, to be in their presence. And I remember as a, as a baby Christian, I went to go see Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, man, we need a Christian Romeo and Juliet that we should write for God. And, like, it was kind of cheesy. Um, but at least the, the, the faithful person shouldn't be less than the passion of Romeo and Juliet. Maybe it would be more, maybe it would be more nuanced and sophisticated, but it, there's something to that love poetry that says, I know you so well, I simply long to know you better. Not that, all right, I know you, peace, we've done that, we've had our coffee for an hour, and we'll go to the next thing. Hopefully this, this actually can seem liberating because this is saying to you that faith does not mean you need to have a bunch more knowledge. That's not what it's saying. We're not told a lot of new things in this psalm. And oftentimes a Christian, uh, to, for growth in their Christian life, it's not dependent on knowing more and more bits of information or knowledge. The other thing that is, it, it's liberating because is that he's not saying take these longings and these deep, almost falling in love type desires with God and put them aside, keep them at bay, keep them quiet, and be calm so that you can go to church. That's not what's going on here. If anything, it's the opposite. It's saying take those feelings and bring them to God. So it's not saying that we need a bunch more knowledge. It's not saying that we need to to downplay or erase our feelings. It becomes this amazing expression for it. You simply have to know the direction to Zion, if you will, the, the direction to where God dwells. So that's something of what the, the faith of a pilgrim is, that it's, it at least knows enough. It knows enough to want it. What exactly does it know? I want to look at that, specifically who is God according to this um, the, the first thing that comes right out, if you're to look at it, is over and over he's called the Lord of hosts. Uh, the Lord, Lord Sabaoth, if you've ever heard that term, simply means of hosts, of, of the heavenly armies, the angels' armies. Um, and so you have this love poetry, but then you also have this term, which is almost a military term. It's a, it's a strong term, emphasizing God's power. God's might. And he's talked about as a shield and a protector and a, and a gracious giver of all things. And so that's a clear aspect of the way that the psalmist uh, relates to God. That's something that he knows about God. Oftentimes they would be relating all the good deeds that God had done in the past. And often the psalms are saying, let's go, let's talk about all the good deeds. All the things, usually how God saved Israel out of Egypt. For us, it would be how God saved us from the slavery of sin in Christ. So he's powerful and he's strong and he's the shield and protector. But the the main thing that I wanted to spend some time on is also he is a God who dwells among us. He is a living God that chooses to dwell among us. Now, first, that means he is a, a, a living, uh, uh, objective, personal 
God is not simply a force or a being that you often encounter in Eastern philosophies or religions. He's not an impersonal force. He's a jealous God. He's a person. And he has a certain place where he dwells. Even as an address, if you will. He's a place where you can go and meet with him. We're going to unpack what that means now, but it's very clear in the Psalms that's what he's talking about. He's, he's literally talking about going to the temple in Jerusalem and it had an address where you could go and meet with him. And so, for some reason, simply because God is God, he chose to dwell among his people. This was how we were meant to exist in his dwelling. That's what Eden was meant to be. Eden was meant to be a temple. It was meant to be a place where God dwelled with the people he made. And then ever since they got kicked out, you you can really trace all of redemptive history through this lens of God's dwelling place. Where is it going to be? Where can I be sure to find God? Sure, he's, he's everywhere. Sure, he's out in the forests and the deserts and the rivers. But where can I really know his forgiveness? Where can I be assured of pardon? Where can I be assured of his presence? Well, it becomes these altars in Genesis and then the tabernacle that Moses builds and then the temple that Solomon builds. So you see the grace there, obviously, that that God is willing to do that and that this is what we were meant to do. We were meant to exist where God dwells. It shouldn't surprise us when we are unsatisfied because we are not fully dwelling in God's presence. So this, this longing is very characteristic of a Christian. The sense of a pilgrim should be characteristic of it. We're made for the immediate presence of God, and we don't have that yet. We are exiles. But in the New Testament, we learn that that system, if you will, has failed. Israel has been exiled, and the temple now, God's dwelling place, is in Jesus It's called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It says in John 1 that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us or dwelt among us or became a temple among us. Jesus fulfills all the things that the temple was meant to do and to be. And we could take a long time to look at those passages, um, but we won't do that now. And then in Jesus, he says, as As he's ascended, he sends the Spirit so that that place can be the church. The dwelling place of God can be the church. And you may think, all right, yeah, sure, a pastor, of course, is going to say the most important place is the church. That's very convenient. Um, But let me at least point you to Scripture, and uh, maybe you won't be as cynical as we can be. Ephesians 2, you heard part of it read. Ephesians 2 gives, is a great example of this, but it's really throughout Scripture. Um, but especially the end part, for through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access, by the way. Access is, we, is so underappreciated. We, we so take that for granted that we have access. I don't know why. Maybe it's just our modern sensibility. We should have access to everyone. Everything, we're democratic and everyone's equal. 
But we have access to the real God, the creator of all things. Let's not take that for granted. That's a crazy thing just by itself. So we have access in one spirit to the Father because he did this thing through the cross. He brought those who were far off near. Those who had no right to be in the temple in Israel, he brought us near. Uh, So you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God is another way that it got phrased in the psalm. The house of God. Not just the courts of the Lord, but the house of the Lord. Um, So we are actually members of it, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And listen to how this passage in Ephesians ends. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear what he's saying there? If you've read it before, uh, it may lose its bite. And if the church is rather underwhelming or boring to you, it may also lose its bite. But it shouldn't lose its bite. It's saying that you, members of the visible church, are becoming the dwelling place of God. That He says the very same thing. In Ephesians 4, when he talks about the different things that have been given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for this purpose that we would all become built up into the body of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, this is what we're being made into. And with all the wonders and with all the focus on the temple in the Old Testament, it's become even better now in the New because it's now us who are becoming living stones we're called we're becoming living stones into the temple of God what does this mean what could this if you were to really appreciate that what would that mean for you actually taking part in becoming where God dwells now you may think this is really stupid because I'm a terrible sinner and why would I become maybe I go somewhere to find God. Why would I become the dwelling place of God? But that's precisely the point, because as we are united to Christ, we start to embody the gospel. And so the faith that we talked about earlier, the faith that is is knows enough to lack, knows enough to long and desire, as it grows, it sees that we are in such such desperate need of God. And as we grow in that need, we grow in our knowledge of the gospel. That as our life takes on the characteristics of that need and trying to find it satisfied in Christ, it starts to embody the gospel. That's what the dwelling place of God is meant to look like. It's meant to look like the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That's their model. That's the dwelling place. Kind of wild. And of course, we are only getting a taste of that now by faith. But the final picture in Revelation we're getting is the temple. We're not trying to escape this world. We're waiting for this world to be fully redeemed as the heavenly temple comes down and becomes the whole world. 
That is our final hope. Final hope. And therefore, it, it makes sense for then the psalmist to say things like he does in verses 10 and, 10 and 11. One of them which we, we sung, Better is One Day. Um, it makes sense that he can say things like, It's better to be in your courts for one day than to be anywhere else for a thousand. Rather to be a doorkeeper or, or some humble servant in the house of the Lord. Maybe you're thinking of the famous quote from Milton. What is it? The Satan says, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven, I think. And so the, the heart of the, of the Christian is the opposite. I'd rather serve in heaven than reign in hell. Would you? I mean, don't see it as that easy of a question, would you? Would it be better to simply be on your knees in, in humble service to the temp, in the temple of God rather than reigning with all the, the supposed power of hell? And then he's also, it also makes sense then to talk about God as a sun and shield the Lord that bestows favor and honor because no good thing does he withhold. All right, so I want to I then ask, if these things are the case, what should we do with them? What should we, uh, how should this matter? Um, and first, just to reiterate what I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that it should be typical, it should be characteristic of a Christian for, to have deep desires, deep longings, that we are not where we're meant to be, we are not finished. That if we find ourselves becoming more and more satisfied in the world, that very well could be a warning sign. That you're not encountering God enough to say, there's got to be more than this. Surely I was made for something more than this. You may think of the, the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And they actually reference the their faith in Christ in that song, talking about I believe in the kingdom come, and you have borne my cross of my shame. They say that, and then it's, and yet I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Does that make sense to you as a Christian, or does it seem like, no, I have found what I'm looking for? No, I, I, there's the tension there, right? There's the tension. Another important part in this, in this context is the way Paul talks about contentment being content in all things, and he's talking about a lot of times he has what's been he has what he needs, churches that are supporting him provides for him. Other times he's in great lack or he's in great need and he says, either way, I'm content in all circumstances, for I know that that uh, the one who strengthens me will get me through. So does that mean that Paul didn't have deep desires for God's glory? Well if you read any other parts of Paul's letters, you see that he's always struggling for himself and for other people to know the Lord more. He talks about the concern he has for the churches. He talks about he's striving that he may just obtain the resurrection from the dead. And so you have these two um, almost almost competing desires in the Christian and I think the reason is because we have this this longing and desire, but we know the person that we can take them to. We know the person that we can take them to, and that's the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 
that we can go to him, the personal God who chose to dwell among us in Christ when we had no right to deserve it or earn it. We can go to him as our refuge. And so I wanted to mention this quote. Can we go back to the the yearning, the very first slide? I find this quote from John Calvin on, uh, on prayer to be really helpful. Let me just read it. Maybe you read it when you came in, maybe not. For the saints, the occasion that best stimulates them to call upon God is when, distressed by their own need, they are troubled by the greatest unrest and are almost driven out of their senses until faith opportunely comes to their relief. For among such tribulations, God's goodness so shines upon them that even when they groan with weariness under the weight of present ills and also are troubled and tormented by the fear of greater ones, yet, relying upon his goodness, they are relieved of the difficulty of bearing them and are solaced in hope for escape and deliverance. The godly man's prayer should represent both. That is, that he groan under present ills and anxiously fear those to come, yet at the same time take refuge in God, not at all doubting he is ready to extend his helping hand. You guys see the, the two things that are supposed to exist? Because if you think about it, if you have one without the other, either in prayer or just in the Christian life, you're, you're clearly missing some core aspect of Christianity. Because if you have just constant anxiety or constant cynicism or constant uncertainty and doubt, and then... God makes no real difference in your life. There's no actual hope to get out. But if you're the happy-go-lucky person who seems so absolutely content that there's nothing wrong with life, there's nothing even more that you could want or desire, you're acting as if you're in heaven. You've somehow glossed over. And Jesus will even say to you, if you are comforted in this life, you will, some whoa, you will mourn. Basically saying, don't, don't find your comfort in this world. And it's, it's this group often that Jesus is very uh, confrontational with. The group that is, is so content because they've, they've worked so hard to get the comforts in this world. It's very counterintuitive. And so remembering that these, these longings, that we don't have to be ashamed of them, we don't have to hide them, but we can remember that we can bring them to this gracious God, and this gracious God that's making us, the community of the church, into his dwelling place. And so maybe ask yourself, is your experience in the church a place where you can say, yeah, I'm encouraged because I see with the psalmist, I can say, blessed are these people their strength is in the Lord? Are you encouraged by seeing different types of people walking through parts of their lives with faith? Do you see things uh, happening that are true of a pilgrim on their way? Or does it feel like it's easy to be impatient with the church, it's easy to cast stones, it's easy to only try to get what I need out of it and consume it? But if we're trying to be built up by speaking the truth in love, be built up in all sorts of ways into the church. This, this should be a great sense of encouragement. 
the one part that I didn't mention much when he talks about they go from strength to strength, seems like he's talking about those who trust in the Lord. Literally, on the pilgrimage, when they're going through um, parts of the land that are so dry, yet their faith, their trust in the Lord, gets them through as if it is springs of water. So they're relying on the Lord in this pilgrimage. And then finally, this, these, these characteristics, this type of faith, is what the psalmist describes as being blessed. And maybe it's not a word that you use a lot, but ultimately, being blessed, that is what we're after. Hopefully, you want to be blessed. Now, that doesn't mean blessed maybe because you got a new house and you can post hashtag blessed. That means the full sense. Blessed is a big uh, term in the Psalms. It talks about it a lot. It comes up right away in Psalm 1 about the righteous one who, who lives in the community of the blessed. In, in Psalm 32, those who are blessed are the ones who are forgiven. Meaning those who are blessed are the ones who know their sin but can bring it to God. So what does it mean to be blessed in this passage? It's pretty simple. It means you are blessed if you are dwelling in the house Lord. Did you notice his prayer right in the middle was simply, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. That's that's really the, the only ask in this psalm, is to simply hear my prayer. There aren't very many specifics. And then to look on the anointed one, which we know to be now Jesus Christ. So what would that mean for us? That if, if we're trying to be blessed, we're going to say to God, Lord, hear me. Lord, hear me. I am in need. I know who you are, but I am in need. I want to dwell in your place, in your house. And so look on Jesus. That's what we're going to get to do at the table. We're going to get to look on Jesus. And we're going to ask the Father, Look on Jesus, too, because that's where I am. If my life is in Christ, then then the Father is looking on Jesus, and he sees me, and I'm looking on Jesus, and I see the Father. And the Holy Spirit is uniting us. That's what it means to be blessed, doesn't it? That's what it means that we can say, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord. We want to see them more and more. I hope this is characteristic of your faith. I hope this can become more of what it means to be a Christian for you, because it opens up so much more life. So much more life in the Word, so much more life in Christ that often we want to ignore, we want to set aside. So let's take a moment, prepare our hearts, and reflect as we start to come to the table. Let's pray.